Will Birch, what are you, first of all? Are you a writer? Are you a drummer? Are you a producer? Are you a, an historian? Well, I've tried my hand at all of those things and danced between them. I, I'm certainly not a drummer anymore. Um, and I never really w- w- considered myself to be uh, to a drummer, but it was, of course, a route into being in a group. And then when you're in a group, then you, if you want to be a songwriter, you've got a, a basis for your song. So primarily, I'd like to think of songwriting, but it's been some years since I've had... I did have a, a song uh, released recently uh, with Danny Champ, which I co-wrote with him. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, it was on his most recent um, album, and he, you know, went and saw him live, and he does it, you know. And um, but it's been a while since I'd had a cover, so yeah, writing, you know, I've done a few books, I do a bit of magazine work, so a bit of everything really. I'm not an expert in one particular. For field. sure. Well, you yeah. are on the basis of writing three books, including Cruel to Be Kind, the life and music of your friend Nick Lowe, uh, you get your music library card. And I'm trying to talk to 78 music writers, um, trying to hit various genres. And I know that you don't like the term pub rock. So what do I refer to the bands who played the pub rock circuit in the 1970s as? Well, I don't particularly mind pub rock. I think the phrase I'd really not that keen on was power pop. Oh. But, uh, yeah, you know, but, but um, I'm not sure I've ever said I don't like pub rock as a handle. Well, no, the thing about pub rock, um, a lot of people who, weren't, uh, who, who didn't go to the gigs at the time, you know, in, in the pubs in the 70s, they, they and didn't know much about the circuit or the, or the acts that played on the circuit. They thought it was a term that summarised the, the, the musical style. Well, of course, it was no such thing. It was more about the venues and the circuit, you see. So clearly there were country-influenced groups, there were R&B-influenced groups, there were out-and-out rock and roll. So there's all sorts of groups all playing on the pub circuit. Uh, for my book called... No uh, Sleep no, Till Canby no, Island. <laughs> no Sleep Till Canby Island, yeah. People, you know, I think the publisher wanted a... Uh, you know, to say what is that? It's the great pub rock revolution. Um, so I do use it in that title, and uh, I do believe it was a revolution for reasons I could go into, but I don't want to bore everyone to death. Well, <laughs> I've seen the Julian Temple film Oil City Confidential, which is one of my favourite films. I knew of Wilco because yeah. I heard Mark Radcliffe play the music of the Feel Goods. Mark is kind of a living tribute to... He looks a bit like Lee Brillo and wants the kind of... He has a university education like John. Do we call Wilco Wilco or John? It's his Wilco. When I first knew him, he was John. I mean, I was, I was in a group with him many, many, many years ago and he was John then. But I think when the Feel Goods got going, he got, everybody kind of got a nickname, you know, like Brillo. Sparko figure, and he was Wilco. Yeah. In fact, in fact, I, I think he kind of became Wilco just around the time they started playing in the pubs in London in '73. So yeah, Wilco. Anyway, yeah, that's great. That film, isn't it? That, that's very dramatic. I think it's yeah. very um, loud as well. It's a very loud. Film. But I love, um, and I, I hadn't seen the Julian Temple film. Did he do great rock and roll swindle? That was his. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's, is that the Sex Pistols? Yeah, and it's, I remember seeing it in Edinburgh at the Film House and just being swept up by Canvey. I've never gone that far east, but there's no wonder.
it seems like a what happened in Birmingham in the early 70s, what brought heavy metal into gear. There was something about, we are from Southend-on-Sea, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. So Canvey, Southend, Colchester. It's a ripe musical landscape. And I suppose I should ask you, as a songwriter from that area, how does the area, how is the area expressed in the songwriting that you do? Well... That's a good question. Um, coincidentally, at the moment, with a couple of mates of mine who are Cosmo Vinyl, um, we used to work with The Clash, and, and Charles Baum, who's a, a graphic designer, working on a map of Southend and the musical history. Right. And uh, it, it's gonna, we've been doing it for a year or two, and it probably won't be finished for another year or two. But we, we, So we are currently... Um, you know, Jules is taking care of the graphics, and I'm sort of doing the history and Cosmo is conceiving it all. And we're asking ourselves that very question at the moment. You know, why South End? Well, we had the seaside and we had the, the amusement arcades and, and the roller coasters and the pier. So there was that feel that, well, I say, want to say feel good, but there was that atmosphere. It, it was a very entertainment-centred kind of town, like a lot of, I guess, Blackpool might be as well. But the thing about South End was its proximity to London. I mean, you could be... The, the people from, let's say, the East End who come down for, on the Charabang for a day trip, you know, they were just about an hour away. You can hop on a, and be in London in, now in 50 minutes. And I think what a lot of the... When I was a youngster, we, we, we a teenager, we would go up to the Marquee Club, and, you know, this is in the 1960s, and see The Who or The Move or something like that, and, and, and bring back uh, what we'd learned by seeing these fantastic groups in London. But but we'd come back and we'd be detached from it. You know, we weren't, um, we weren't sort of affected by London. That's really why I think the Feel Goods had a good, good run because they were based on Canby Island and they could jump in their van and be in, be in, in one of these pub gigs inside an hour and 10 minutes, do the gig, get in the van and go back home. They, they didn't get um, seduced into that London scene very much. So they were up kind of aloof from it. And that gives one a slightly uh, detached view, which I think is quite healthy. Um, I don't think I've answered your question, but, but Southend was also much of a music town. I mean, because of the seaside atmosphere, you know, there were a lot of jukeboxes. And there was a real, in the 60s, uh, there was a real coffee bar circuit, yeah, you know, dur nice. during, the, during the mod period. Uh, Southend is a very mod town as well, lots of scooters. And those jukeboxes were, were loaded by the people who were pretty hip. So you get a lot of imported singles. You know, you get the new Sam and Dave single or the Drifters, whoever it was, ages before it got on the radio. So we were, pr we were pretty connected with the music and, and, and with the feel-goods on Canby. They were very into, you know, blues, well, early jug band music and then blues and... and um, so, yes, you know, to quote Carol King and Jerry Goffin, so near yet so, so far, far away. away. Yeah, which really sort of sums it up. London was kind of convenient, but we weren't um, infected by London. We stood apart from London in that period. And, and your three books all reflect that era. It's a very specific time and place, which I'm far too young for, so I only get it second hand via yeah. video and via watching Wilco's bug eyes walking. <laughs> so you've been on a stage with Wilco Johnson. Do you find yourself distracted? Because you're trying to hit the two and the four 
he's <laughs> going backwards and forwards. Is it a nightmare or, or is it free entertainment for you? When I was actually in a group with him, and we're going back many decades, um, uh, and I was learning to play the drums, and he wasn't doing that strut in those days. Uh, he was doing the same style of guitar playing, you know, very Mick Green of the Pirates influence, that sort of... He, could do, he had that down, but he hadn't become the skittering Wilco that we all know and love today or, or have done for the last 40-odd years. I think with the Veal Goods, I mean, I think figure. Uh, on the drums was so his own he was in his own bubble you know he he the whole thing swing he would ignore Wilco but I mean the great thing about the feel goods Lee and Wilco particularly would jump up and down run around but they would never smile mm-hmm. and they would uh, they'd smile <laughs> they'd turn around and smile but they would never smile and they would never uh, be thrown in any way by what the other one was doing so Lee could be doing those press-ups on the floor and Wilco could be doing the big jump up and down with his legs in the air, but they would ignore each other. And that was what's so great about the feel-goods. They were, they, they were just so good, but they weren't... They didn't, like, look at each other and go, we've been a bit, you know, being a bit silly now. They would just do their own thing, particularly in Wilco. They were a fantastic live group. Yeah, and a, a measure of how good they were. And this still astounds me. Stupidity, the feel-goods live album, was the best-selling album in Britain that week. From someone in the scene, was it like it was a victory? Is it like when Kamala Harris becomes the vice president and all black people cheer? Is it that kind of all for one, one for all? Well, it was the Fielder's third album, wasn't it? So they'd had two studio albums, which made a bit of an impression. But during the period of the first two records, they were building up their name on on the London, well, on the national circuit, let's say, the national circuit. They were playing the big Odeons. They were playing the big consoles. They were pulling you know, 2,000 people a night in any town you care to name. And they'd been building that for about two years. So when that record was released in the fall of 1976, um, the audience was ready for it. And and because the Vilgas was just a live act, that was really in some ways was their definitive recording. That album really summed up what the Feelgoods were all about. However, um, I mean, I went to quite a few of those shows myself at the Rainbow and the, and the Hammersmith Odeon because I was mates with them and I just loved to watch and witness their, their shows. But what I was noticing at that period was the, the, how the punk thing was starting to break out, and which I loved, incidentally. I absolutely loved it. But it's mainly the male, the young males who were the feel-good fans, so, you know, typically an 18-year-old boy, you know, uh, in, in a sort of a gang of boys, not too many girls around. That those that, that audience worshipped the feel-goods. They were the people that propelled the feel-goods to number one week, almost week of release of, of that record. Uh, three months later, you know, they'd moved on. The Clash the Sex Pistols, The Damned, which was great. But the, but I don't think um, that it would have been quite so easy for those punk groups to get record contracts and even make it, and, and get the uh, column inches they got in the, in the very popular music press them had the feel-goods not have built that foundation. So the, I think the feel-goods were, were responsible for building an audience that very easily adapted to the, the not, not dissimilar, but the slightly edgier punk sound and 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 indeed you know the feel goods were there uh, because the pub rock circuit had existed had the pub rock circuit not have existed i don't think well anything could have not happened i mean it was just a, a fantastic the fortuitous sequence of 
you know, events and places at the time. If I could go back into music history anywhere, it would be October 9, 1976, when Dr Feelgood knocked the best of the stylistics volume two off the UK album chart. And what knocked Feelgood off the next week? Um, was it something... I, I, I don't know, I could probably guess, but I, no, go on, what was it? The greatest hits of ABBA, who this month are playing as holograms. In fact, more or less the week that this goes out, the holograms will be all over the world. Well, wasn't it great that ABBA and the Feelgoods and Stylistics and, and could all coexist yeah. in that beautiful golden era that we nostalgically <laughs> recall? <laughs> you know, it was, a, it was a fantastic period, really, from the sort of the mid fifties through the sixties and seventies, and into maybe into the first half of the nineteen eighties. That thirty-year period, there was so much creativity. Some people say, "Oh, you're being nostalgic," but. It was, didn't you just think about it? Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, Joni Mitchell. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, where... Stevie Wonder. We, Stevie Wonder, of course. You know, Buddy Holly. That was, was the a, art form. We'd moved on was. from kind of orchestral or... Because classical music got more and more atonal. Uh, Bob Stanley has now written a book about the first half of the 20th century and popular entertainment. Yeah. Uh, following up, yeah. Are you in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does he write about the Kersals? Um Are we in? Is are we in any of Bob's? Books are you in else? that big eight hundred page book about popular music from nineteen fifty two onwards? The, is that the, the previous yeah, 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 is what yeah, it's yeah, called. Book. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have the book. Um, I confess, I you know, I, I don't know. I'd have to. Has it got an index? <laughs> if it hasn't, <laughs> I mean, um, I don't know. Oh. I well, I only I only say that just to say that um, Will Birch, songwriter uh, from one of four albums, the one I've got in front of me, produced by Mike Bat, Golden Mile. You're second from the right, aren't you? Have I got a white tie on? A lovely white tie, yes, knitted, and an insouciant expression. Knitted tie and black shirt. Yeah, that's me, yeah. Yeah, second from the right. Yeah, that's brilliant. Square. You were introduced on Top of the Pops by a very, very, very nasty human being. Do you know, the funny thing was, I was watching that video myself about three weeks ago simply because um, when the, the, the BBC, you know, on one of their Top of the Pop shows, would rerun some of those oh, um, no. clips, yes. I, I, I used to record them, and I've got them on like a little CD-ROM or something, I don't know. Anyway, I've kept them, and I was just looking at one the other week, and it's got the introduction on it. And the really funny thing is, the guy whose name we won't mention, who introduced us, at the if you wouldn't see the clip, we're on stage, is that the one with all the washing machines behind us? Famously, and, yes. Uh, yeah, and on the, on the wall is our sign, our stage sign, which just said Kurzels. Because for shorthand, people would refer to it like the Kersals, the Brinsleys, the Fieldwoods. Yes. We were the Kersals. And the sign was behind us on top of the pops. And, and the announcer at the end, he said, and that was the Kersals there. And I thought to myself, where's he got that from? He must have been looking at that sign because we were, the, on, you know, on his script, Kersal Flyers. But he'd, he'd, he'd ad adopted that word Kersal when he back, back announced us. So, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, we did talk the pops a couple of times. Because, yeah. well, in the days when, and I listened to Pick of the Pops, and whenever a song goes up 12 places, I always think, ah, they must have been on top of the pops, because it really was when there were three TV channels. Yeah. All you, all you basically could do was have three chords and form a band, and you formed the Kersal Flyers with this chap whom, 
Paul Shuttleworth seems like a character. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a. Well, Paul's one of my best friends, and you know, I still see Paul, Lovely. and I've known him since 1915, whatever. And um, he, he's a lovely guy, but he, 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 when he goes on stage, he he switches on a persona, you know. So his thing around the time the Curzel Flyers got going, we were started out as a country rock group. I mean, our repertoire was all, all covers of country, West Hank Williams and stuff. Oh, wow. And then we gradually started writing our own songs with Graham and I would write and they would be all, all kinds of styles. And, we, and, and whatever we put, Paul would front them off brilliantly. But he, he at that time, he had the little, like, the wide boy moustache, you know, and he, he that character he, he he built was fantastic. And he could hold an audience's attention. Oh, he, he held mine. What a, what a, a great front man, yeah. Yeah, he was really good, Paul, and still is. He's got his country group now, the Ugly Guys. He's still doing bits and pieces here and there. Um, but Paul, we were so full of Paul up front in the middle, and I think we had some pretty good songs. And we, and, and also, we, we'd pick our covers. I mean, we, we used to do The Monkeys, I'm a Believer, which is a, obviously Neil Diamond's mm-hmm. song, the great song. Um, we, we used to, When we first started playing the pubs, we, we'd do that in the middle of our set. I mean, this, don't forget, this is only about six years yep. after that record had been a hit for the Monkeys, and it was it was disgusting pop. Nobody, no knowledge pop, but we thought, you know, sod it kind of thing. Rob Wyatt we, did it. Oh, well, he did do it. Yes, he did do a version of it. That's true. Probably around about exactly the same yeah, time. I think so. Seventy-three, seventy-four. Yeah. But that was just a kind of coincidence. But we we did it more out of kind of bravado, really. We thought, well, this this will sort of wind them up a bit. But we loved the song, don't get me wrong. We were very sincere about this. We loved the song. But as soon as you did it, you'd see people in the Kensington pub or the Hope and Anchor would look at each other and go, what on earth is this? But then (laughs) gradually, you know, they'd kind of come round. And our own songs that we started to write, some of them were quite sort of poppy, you know, like you said. When I started going to pubs, the smoking ban had just come in, so 2006, and yeah, whenever I used yeah. to go to Spurs, the secondhand smoke would get to me. But being in a pub, having oh. your attention held by <laughs> Nick Lowe, Lee Brillo, Wilco Johnson, Ian Dory, who's the subject of your definitive biography, which must have been amazing. And the biography, I think, came out, I think, the same year as the Andy Serkis movie. Yes, it did. Um, the, my Ian book, in fact, when it was um, being edited and it was going to the, going to print, and we were just doing the last minute checks and so forth, which would have been uh, two thousand nine, sort of the autumn of. Uh, that's when we all heard about this Andy Circus being playing the part of Ian uh, during this biopic, and as soon as word got out, my my. Ian Dury book was scheduled for publication in March of 19... Sorry, March 2010. of... 2010. Yeah, 2010, sorry. And as soon as my publisher heard that there was going to be an Ian Dury movie coming out in January, they pulled, they pulled the date, you know, they pulled the date forward or backward, whichever way it is, to January so that the film and the book came out this, almost the same week because I guess they saw there'd be press on, on the film and that might spur a bit of press on the book. And maybe even vice versa. So, um, yes, it was exactly the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, wonderful film. And I, oh, yeah. I've walked down Kilburn High Road, so I know <laughs> roughly 
what was going on there. But not in 1974 with Ian and his cane. Um, what an incredible... And I, I remember finding out that he died. I went, ah, oh, the Hit Me Rhythm Stick guy died. He died of, um, in about 2001. Are all the... St- um, well, I should ask. His son, Baxter, is upholding the family name and has gone into the family business. How well do you know Baxter? Um, well, I interviewed him a couple of times when I was researching my own biography, and Baxter put his own memoir out last year, mm-hmm. and very, very, very nicely gave me a very nice credit uh, for for the research I'd done on Ian's life. I always, when I do, uh, well, I say well, I've definitely done a couple, but like, a biography. I certainly spend a year or so researching family background of these people, and you end up finding out stuff about you know, their ancestors or predecessors that they weren't aware of, especially with the Nick Lowe book, but that's another story. We'll but get there. With, yeah. with regard to, to um, Ian, yeah, I, I, I researched, um, and some family members helped me. Uh, I didn't do it all on my own, but um, Baxter was very gracious about that. Um, I won't say I hang out with Baxter, but I certainly buy his records, and I think he's great. Much like... Nick Lowe, you write in the book that Nick Lowe's fans know when Nick Lowe has a record out, but no one else does. And that is just the nature of modern musicality, because there is no music press except for Mojo and Uncut. Uh, but, but I mean, all the Inkies have gone. The Enemy Sounds, Melody Maker, and there's another one. Record Mirror. Well, back in the old days, Record Mirror, old Disc and Music Echo, they were the big four. Yeah. But you're talking in the 1970s, but they've all gone to the wall. I mean, I was amazed when NME went to the wall what, just a few years ago. But you um, was talking earlier about Top of the Pops. I mean, it was very much, it was sort of three, three channels. There was two or three radios, two radio stations that played popular music, one and two, or whatever, like program. And, and um, Rod Stewart would come on Top of the Pops, and the whole family would be sitting around the telly, and Dad would say, oh, look at his haircut, what does he think he is, you know, and then Mum would go, oh, shut up, he's lovely. And that, and, and then the kids would go, no, he's great, Maggie May or whatever. And there'd be this kind of a family, not a conflict, but differences of opinion. And everybody, the whole nation, you know, 20 million people would be sitting watching the new records on top of the pops. They'd go to the record shop, they'd buy it. And if they were keen about music, they'd buy the enemy and melody maker or whatever. It was... Not like today, where there's thousands of channels and the internet, and it's become kind of diversified, hasn't it? Which I suppose is healthy in a way, but there's no central focus for popular music. Although, if there is, I don't know what it is. I, I, no, there isn't. Yeah, there isn't. I mean, know. the closest thing I can think of is Jules, but even then, that that'll that's neutered. That's not what it was. Not even kind of Gogglebox. There's not even a musical Gogglebox. That would work. That's basically Beavis and Butthead musical Gogglebox. That's where they got the idea. But it's amazing that uh, Up the Junction and Cool for Cats, between them, sold a million copies and they both didn't get to number one. And it just, (laughs) it doesn't compute. I don't know. Obviously, you still get the Radio 2 money because I've heard Little Does She Know being played by Ken Bruce many times. (laughs) Johnny Walker would play it on Sounds of the 70s as well. But at the time... You would have seen checks that hopefully you uh, put away to either buy instruments or houses. I'm not going to ask you where you spent your money, but was it a good time financially to be a rock and roll musician? I don't think the the income from live performances is, is as healthy as it is today. 
I mean, people today, live music, I mean, it's a big thing, isn't it? So, you know, you can see a lot of acts playing these arena Blondie on tour at the yeah. moment. They're doing the arenas, you know, I suppose they're playing to an average of, well, I don't know, four or 5,000 people a night, and they're doing 12 dates, and if they're careful and the merch is going well as well, there's a good money to be earned. Um, whereas, that, but, but conversely, there isn't the record sales like there used to be. And certainly with the advent of streaming, I don't want to go into this too much, but basically listening to music has now become free. And consequently, uh, songwriters and musicians aren't earning anything like what they would have done even 20 years ago before the internet, uh, before streaming became a thing, you know. Um, so it's completely changed. I followed the DCMS interviews where they asked, look, if you're listening to Spotify, is it a rent or a sale? And the answers were not satisfactory because however much we think the the CEOs of these record labels know about music, they care about micropayments instead of microtones. They care about payments. And it it is so sad. And I was talking with Graham Thompson and we agreed that um, catalogue is now the music industry's priority. And if you were a business exec, wouldn't you want to plug Jesus of Cool and get more sales of like a box set of Jesus of Cool or new boots and panties? Well, yeah, it's a very, very tricky. I mean, in answer to your question, there is an argument to say that Spotify is a broadcast medium. You could make that argument. I don't know enough about it to pontificate, but I do think... It's basically free, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, what is it, a tenner a month? Well, that is as good as free, uh, you know. And for, for that price, you can listen to music 24 hours a day, virtually anything you want. And you don't have to go out and buy the physical product anymore. And what you want here is probably not going to come on the radio when, you, when you're in your car or whenever you listen to the radio. So in some ways, it's very healthy. But for, certainly for uh, musicians, it's been a huge drop in in income i gather but you know that's another story and then of course the the, really the successful um ceos of these record companies i mean famously uh that guy recently awarded himself or they awarded him a 249 million bonus last year yes but he's not there i mean he 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 i i believe he is a music fan he was you know i had a meeting he was once Yeah, when he was doing A&R, and um, he seemed to be a fan. This was in the 90s, but he's there, he's there to make profits for his company, and which he does very well, hence his uh, rewards. So. And, and yes, and Lucian Grange is one of the anomalies. He is a figure who is yeah, cutting yeah. me bleed semi-quavers. Um, but it's, it's not fair. Cruel to be kind, Will Birch, the life and music of Nick Lowe. You don't see many bases on the covers of music memoirs. So it's delightful to see. You may have actually seen that red bass guitar in person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's got a bass guitar. Yes, he has. We had to select a suitable image for the, the book cover. The, the book cover in America is different to the British one, but the British one's got Nick with the with that ba- ba- red bass guitar. We were really looking how Nick came over in the photograph than what he could have easily have had an acoustic guitar or electric guitar. It just happened to be the bass. But bass was his first instrument, I got. Um, there he is with it, yeah. And if you get past that cover, you will yeah. read um, an introduction, which um, it's only about kind of 2,000 words, but 
you say he is the Nick Lowe, this is the Jesus of cool, the assimilator, the thinker, the contrarian with a single minded dedication to his craft. I think it was Chrissy Hind who compared him to Ray Davis and she would know. Who else is in Nick's class of kind of the House of Lords of pop? Well, he he is a, a, a much underrated songwriter. I'm talking now by the general public. I mean, obviously, obviously his fans rate him extremely highly, but he's not that well known. It's easier to say who his songs have been covered by, and then when you say, you know, Rod Stewart and Engelbert Humperdinck and 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 uh, all these people who've, who've recorded his Tom Petty, and you know, it's incredible because those people recognise his songs and love his songs. But from his own kind of career. Um, his, yeah, his career arc, yeah, good word, his arc, it, he did go through a period where he, he didn't work very hard, let's put it like that, and he'd be the first to admit it, I mean, I'm not calling him out of school kind of thing, he he he, he wasn't particularly, I mean, he would go on, on tour, but he would sort of sometimes run away from uh, promotional opportunities, you know, I think he says, you know, the last thing he wants to do is sit down on the sofa and do breakfast TV, he's not that keen on self-promotion. He's a modest guy, but he, but in a way, he's carved himself out a niche, really, where he's got a lot of respect, and he can go on tour and, as he is at the moment, you know, and do the biz, and he's got a very loyal, very loyal audience. And in answer to your question, well, who's who's up there with him? Who's he up there with? Yes. <laughs> well, if I say you know Nick Lowe's one of the greatest pop songwriters living, a lot of people go, oh, don't be ridiculous, you know, who's ever heard of Nick Lowe? <laughs> you get that kind of thing. And then when you start to look at his songs, I mean, most people know Cruel to Be Kind, and most people know What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding, and and uh, one or two other sort of hits he, he had. But um, the quality of his work is more on some of his album tracks, you know, where there's the depth of writing, just fantastic stuff. But I'm, 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 an, I'm a real fan. And it was difficult for me, in a way, to write about it without coming over to <laughs> yes. gushing to. Just, but I had to just say, well, never mind. I've just got to write from my heart and say what I think about him. And I think he's a fantastic songwriter, you know. And um, he has good taste because I went to see Ron Sexsmith. And I've seen oh, him yeah. several times. Ron Sexsmith, the Canadian Nick Lowe. And mm. uh, Ron opened for Nick Lowe at the Royal Albert Hall as part of a tour in 2009. And I, mm. I saw him and I knew who he was. I knew the glasses and I wouldn't normally. But I went up to Nick and said, look, something has been bothering me. When you, in Surrender to the Rhythm, wrote the line, just about midnight, we decided to call it a day. Did you do that on purpose? And you know what he said? That was so long ago, I don't remember. <laughs> so that's a yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a good line, isn't it? Just around midnight, we decided to call it a day. Yeah, I, mean, I never thing. thought about that. No, really. you don't, yeah, unless true. you hit it. And I'm sure that isn't unique in his uh, craft, because he is a man who every syllable is considered, even the kind of way he sings heartache on the opening line of Cruel to be Kind, it's considered <laughs> without being arch and knowing. And if you if you showed 100 people a picture of Nick Lowe, it might well be a pointless answer. But he is not a pointless songwriter. And he is a kind of Zelig figure, because he was there from the end of the 60s, through yeah. the pubs, through punk, because he had, he had a big role there. And then he was Johnny Cash's son-in-law for a while. Yeah. Yeah, and, and now he's yeah, yeah. the elder statesman. So what's your favourite era of Nick Lowe? Probably the 
the records he made sort of um, in the early part of this century. So, you know, The Convincer is probably his strongest collection. But they're all, they're all of those records um, uh, from from about, well, 2000, no, from the early, sorry, really, actually from the 19, 19, 1990s, really, through the 1990s, the first uh, decade of this century. Three or four albums there, very, very, very strong material. But basically, you know, there's no, not many sort of overtly commercial songs, but quite a few of them have been covered now. So um, gradually, you know, the world gets to hear of these songs. Yeah, um, and especially because if you're going to hear a couple of hits, he, he encores with My Aim is uh, Alison, because he produced My Aim is True for Declan, yeah. um for Elvis. Another, another one who changed his name and like Wilco Johnson, Elvis Costello. It's like kind of uh, the stable in the late fifties, Norrie Paramore stables. <laughs> yeah. 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 A bit. And everything I've heard of Nick's I like. Uh, Mark Commode is a huge fan of Jesus of Cool. He says it's his favorite album. I guess because he was right there. Mark grew up in the sixties and seventies. So if you are a 17, 18 year old going yeah. to the pub, seeing a gig, yeah, the quality well, I, wills yeah, out. Yeah. Well, 18 is the age. You know, I, I do think that that is when uh, a music fan who's going to become an even bigger music fan uh, is at his most easily influenced. Pliable, pliable. Yeah, yeah, but in a, in a, in a kind of good way. You, you know, you've left school probably, you may be at college or you've got your first job, you're 18, you're getting a bit of freedom from mum and dad, you, your mates, and you start going to live shows and you maybe got a couple of quid in your pocket and you could buy an album or whatever and you even thinking of maybe oh i think i've learned the guitar and i might be in a group that's when you met the impressionable is the word but i mean that in a positive way yeah. not impressionable but they're being conned in any way they're impressionable and they're ready for it you're ready for it 18 and if you if you talk to most people their 40s 60s 70s 80s even what their favorite period of music is it invariably is what was happening when they were about 18 so uh, most of the guys i know you know i sort of hang out with her in the 70s they'll go back to buddy holly you know elvis presley and then guys in this in their late 60s will talk about the beatles you know you can and then guys in their late 50s will talk about the clash it's what happens when you're about 18 you might love it all the whole panoply of music but it's what happens when you're in your very late teens. That's that's what stays with you the most, I think, for most people. It's yeah. just a bit of a generalisation. But... No, I, it may be true. I'm just thinking when I was 18, I went to university, yeah. my favourite song was Patience by Take That. Because I love the melody. <laughs> you can't knock the melody. Knock the Barlow, don't knock the melody. Um, and, yeah, well, it's that, a good song. It's a very good song. Brilliant song. Um, it's just the, yeah. it's the packaging that I don't like. A lot of the packaging around music you strip yeah. away because I, I have friends who are musicians and uh, studio and touring musicians or teachers at the same time. And they said that a lot of time as a musician is just taken up with admin because they're their own PLC, they're their own company. And someone like Nick Lowe, the music is 100% of it. Whereas someone like, to pluck a name, Dua Lipa, music is 5%. She's got the TV appearances, the magazine covers, the tour, the arena. These acts like Ron Sexsmith and Nick Lowe, you're going for the banter and the songs. Lewis Capaldi, to an extent. There's a reason he hasn't followed up this record, and he probably needs to write better songs. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. The thing that's happening, of course, today also, if you look at the song credits on now for a lot of these pop recordings, there's 11 writers Track on the guy, song. guy, samples, hook guy, person in the room singing it because they need to know they, they and get it's complete. Playing. It's complete nonsense. It doesn't take 11 people to write a good song, but they feel they've got to give everyone a credit and a share of the pie, which is probably uh, a, good, a good thing, you know, in, in a way, but it doesn't take 11 people. So they're not, 11 people aren't really writing on there. 11 people are sharing in the credit to presumably share in the income. But anyway. Is I, that, I, no, hang on. Is that any different? Graham Thompson was telling me about how early Simple Minds, about whom he's written a book, they created the music as a five. Coldplay well, and you, Coldplay yeah, and you I mean, two similarly. Yeah, well, the thing is about you two, and also R.E.M. were the same, yes. I believe. Yeah, that's right. That they, they shared the songwriting credits and they split the money uh, four ways. And I believe that Coldplay have got a similar thing where they... I don't know they split it... How many in Coldplay? Four or five? I don't know. Uh, four four and there's an extra kind of... Yeah, I don't know if they split it equally, but certainly... Uh, the, the guy who writes the song gets half and the other half is split three or four ways. So for a band of their uh, success, everybody's going to get a very good income because it's the it, songwriting that breaks bands up. Yeah. That's really because of the resentment. So you get a four or five piece band. I mean, what's the chances of there being more than one really good songwriter in any group? Well, hardly at all. Yeah. Some groups you get two, and the Beatles actually had three. Teenage Fan is, Club had three. Teenage Fan Club, very good example, love them. But most groups, there's usually, let's say, a couple of people who write the songs and a couple of people who don't write the songs. And what I think you two did, we, well, you could say um, it keeps the band together. It was proven to be the case with them. <laughs> you could all say but we don't have to have the bass player's dodgy song on the album to keep him happy. So in other words, these people are being paid off. John Deacon wrote right. Another One Bites the Dust. Well, I shouldn't... Uh, what I've just said... I mean, but yes, the point, the point is cut. clear. The point you, is clear, you, yes. want, you, don't, yeah. you don't get lots of songwriters in a group. You don't. Because they go off and do their own thing, you know, like... Um, who was that group in the, in the 70s um, who... They had two singers and they both wrote and they're both very good and they had hits and some of the hits were written by one bloke. Supertramp. Supertramp, yeah. exactly. And now you get Fred Bloggs' Supertramp and Joe Brown's Super, well, not Joe Brown. <laughs> Joe Brown and the brothers doing Supertramp. Take a look, Margot. I paid to see that. Joe Brown, another one from that era. I would love to see a double bill of Joe Brown and Nick Lowe, just for the hair. Yeah, that would be good. That oh. would be good. My sort of theory is the uh, the perfect pop group is made up of four types of person, uh, and you can relate it to um, a, a builder, a builders who put up a house. You know, you've got you you need you need an architect, you need an interior designer, you need a plumber, and you need an electrician. And if you've got those four people in a group, like Status Quo had. Or virtually any successful four-piece group you've got. You've got the dreamer, who's, who's, the group is their concept, you've, but they're not necessarily a great musician. You've got the guy who does all the fiddly bits and makes it sound fantastic. Then you've got the other two guys who don't aspire to be songwriters, 
but one will, you know, get out of the van on the M1 and change the tyre, and the other one will make sure all, all the all the amplifiers are plugged in, you know. And it's when you get that combination, you can apply that to so many four-piece groups, and, and they're they're the ones because you can't have everybody fighting to be the lead singer or fighting to be the songwriter. You need that democracy, but you need that equal contribution in in all the important areas. You know. That's outstanding. Thank you for that, and because that is absolutely true. And I was going to relate that to Nick Lowe, because shamefully I didn't know who Bobby Irwin was, and the late Bobby Irwin, who Nick gets emotional talking about him. The importance of musical mates, literally in the case of what you were just describing, the electrician's mate. The spark is mate. But having a supporting cast is so important. And as well as Bobby Owen, there's another chap who would pin people up by the throat. Hopefully he didn't pin up your throat, Jake Riviera, did he? <laughs> well, I went and worked with Jake for a couple of years um, in the early 80s. Um, when the records, I had a group called The Records and we broke up. And Jake was on the phone and come round for dinner. And um, how would you like to be to manage Carleen Carter? Was his, and Carleen was sitting on the other on the other side of the table, and Nick was there. And, and uh, this was a thing out of the blue. But anyway, I did go and work for them for two two years, I think. And um, I got a fantastic insight into. I mean, Elvis was happening. Jake had Squeeze at the time yeah. as well. Rockpile, well, Rock just breaking up actually, but. I got to see that operation at first hand and um, it was a very exciting period. <laughs> yes. um, but, but to answer your question, yeah, it was. Uh, some days were a bit electric, let's say, you know, but very funny as well. You know, there's some of the funniest things I've ever... I mean, Jake um, could speak fluent French and I, I remember one day he had a French promoter on the phone and they were arguing about something. I don't know, it was the fee or something. And Jake was sort of speaking in broken you, you, you could tell that the Frenchman was sorry speaking in broken English and then suddenly Jake switched into immaculate French you know just I don't know what he was saying to the guy because I don't know don't read French don't know French but he suddenly like switched on this French um, language it was just so 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 funny yeah Jake was great he's a good chap He's all right. Is he still uh, with us? I can't remember. Yeah, Jake's still with us. Yeah, oh, Jake, wow. Yeah, yeah Jake, Jake's around, and uh, I believe he spends some of his time in near near London and some of his time out in, um, some of the year out in Texas. Wow. So he's out Good place to be. Uh, my cousin yeah. Freddie has just moved there uh, from California. He was in San Francisco, but Texas seems to be the place in the States. And my dad lives in Manhattan. So yeah, I would love to read the Jake Riviera story. Do you think you've got another book in you? Yeah, but I don't know that it would be a music or a biography. I, d I don't know. See, the thing is, um, look, I, d I just love doing the research, but it just takes a long, long time, you know. And, and I, to be honest, I'm not that, I don't consider myself a particularly good writer, but I, I, I think I kind of a quite a good researcher and I know the people to talk to so I will do quite a lot of interviews and you know try and put something in a book that has never been put in a book before for, for these <laughs> modest number of people who are interested in those kind of artists but certainly no, maybe I don't know. Well I, I hope your books have sold well because pub rock, Ian Dury, Nick Lowe, Timeless. I was 14, 15 or 18 looking into music 
Much like the fact that if you look at the album charts, Pink Floyd, ABBA, Eminem, Arctic Monkeys, Oasis, they never leave the album charts because they just add up all the streaming numbers. So that and Bob Marley as well. So all that old music, there is a canon that is forming almost by accident, although probably not. And I hope that Nick Lowe is in that canon because everyone knows Elvis Costello because he was the front man with the hits. Uh, But Nick Lowe wrote Peace, Love and Understanding, which appeared on the Bodyguard soundtrack sung by Curtis Stigers, who seems like such a lovely man. Yes, yes. Curtis is a lovely man. And, and of course, nobody knew at the time, well, it, people suspected it would be a big movie. But, of course, that soundtrack album went on to be the biggest selling soundtrack album of all time when people used to still buy CDs. Yeah, and always LPs. will be. Yeah. And, and um, sales, I believe, 45 million. So th- I, that was good fortune for, for Nick. But, but I believe, you know, he, he knew the song. Um, long before he got picked up, I believe, to sing one of the songs on the album because he he liked Nick's stuff and he would do it in his crew. They used to close their set with it, you know. And um, one night somebody heard it and said, what was that? And he said, oh, it's by an English guy called Nick Lowe. Oh, that's got to be in the bodyguard. And he recorded it and it went on to the soundtrack album. Although I don't think you hear it in the film. Yeah. <laughs> well, my heart will go on. The Celine Dion version It's not in Titanic. They base it off the instrumental that is over the end credits. Yeah. And they did that. Can I ask uh, a nerdy producer question about Mutt Lang? Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't know a lot of... But yeah, go on. Because on my research, I found out that Mutt Lang produced some of the records records. Yeah, he he was... um, when When the record signed with Virgin... Uh, we'd done our first single, which was called Starry Eyes, which I sort of did co It's a lovely song. Uh, lovely, lovely co- song. Co- co-produced with a guy called De- Dennis Weinreich. Then when it came to, well, everybody in those days, you do an album. So Virgin said, well, you, we're going to need a producer. And a few names, we, we, we asked for Todd Rundgren, and obviously mm-hmm. we couldn't get him, um, and one or two other quite well-known producers. I think Matt was coming off... Well, he was starting to work with ACDC. It was in that period. But anyway, Mutt was sort of available. So I went around to this flat in Kensington, uh, Mutt's flat, with my demos of the record songs that mostly I'd co-written with the late John Wicks. And um, I played uh, Mutt the demos, and he went, yep, yep, no, don't like that one. And he sort of selected what he thought were the strongest songs, which is fine. Then we had a couple of days routining with him. And the next thing we know, we're in the studio and he's producing us, you know. But I have to say that his engineer, Tim Freescreen, who, who I'd known because Tim was an engineer on some of the Kurzweil Fly stuff we did with Mike Bat, so I knew Tim. Uh, Tim and Matt were a double act almost. Uh, they co- cooperated and there were periods where uh, Matt was called away to go and work with ACDC or whoever it was and kind of would take over production. So it was a bit of a joint effort between the two of them, but... They were both very, very good in the studio, and we yeah. were fortunate to have them, you know. And then the record LP came out, and it was released in America, and um, it was the first release under Virgin Records, packed with uh, Atlantic at the time. They had they were distributing. So we got, the promotion we got on the album was just fantastic, you know. We landed at wherever you land, and 
limo picked us up you know took us into 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 manhattan uh, hello cleveland know. yeah yeah you know so we get out of the limo and there'd be autograph hunters on the sidewalk which i'm I was a bit cynical Ooh. about but anyway <laughs> to make us to make to make they love you baby they love you <laughs> it was a it was a complete setup, but isn't it fantastic. Yeah. These 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 you know wet behind the ears guys are going to come from. Uh, they're going to be jet lagged. They're going to get off a plane. They're going to get in a limousine and they're going to arrive in in Manhattan. And there'll be six or seven autograph books, and they're going to feel like stars. And it was just great, you know. And we had seven or eight weeks of touring, and we did um, we played in Central Park, opening for the Cars. And we were on a Cars TV show in LA, and and we went everywhere. And everywhere we went, we did every day. We do two radio stations, an in-store, you know, uh, then an after-party, and a get-up and go on to the. It was just phenomenal. But what, exactly one year later, when our, the second album came out, a Virgin and Atlantic were parting company, and mm. I think I think our second album was the last album under the under the under the Virgin Atlantic pack. That's so an whereas, amazing story. So whereas in in seventy nine we were doing seven interviews a day, uh, in eighty we did five interviews in seven weeks. <laughs> they don't <laughs> love you no more, baby. They don't <laughs> love you no more. It's a fantastic experience, and I loved it. It's just great. And when you told Nick about your limo treatment, did he say, let me tell you about the time when the Brinsleys went over to the States as the next big thing? Because I I was amazed when I read about this. It may well have actually been in a review of the book. How much does that colour the career of Nick Lowe? Because if I were making a TV documentary about him with, I don't know, Taron Egerton or Daniel Radcliffe in the role, that's that's the hook. The fact that Nick could have had the career if the hype thing had gone the right way. As it was, it is an example of hubris in extremis. Not on his I part. Could, I, well, I, you know, I could, I could talk about this. They were going off piste a bit here, but I've, for, for some years, been trying to uh, motivate somebody into making a Nick documentary, and there have been discussions, and... Anyway, we won't go. It hasn't happened yet. But do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Get the money. I think it will. I think it will in the fullness of time. But I've also um, dreamt about um, the Princey Schwartz film or trip being made into a, into a, a movie. And in fact, over the years, well, I've been approached three times um, uh, to get involved. And last time it happened, about four or five years ago, I really thought. You know, a London-based uh, film production company who do have films, make films you see in the cinema, real people, they they optioned uh, my story, No Sleep, Bill Canvey Island version of the uh, of the Brinsley's trip mm-hmm. as the basis for a movie. I was a screenwriter and I thought, I thought it was all going to be green-lighted, green-lit, uh, but it, they dropped the idea. So um, that hasn't happened, but it, I'm not giving up on it because... I think it would be really funny. It would be like Spinal Tap. It but, is. But, That's exactly what it is. But the truth, it would something that actually, actually happened. And it was an incredible, incredible story. Maybe it'll be made into a film. There was, underneath. about 10 years ago, Mark Ellen yeah. was on the plane. Um, Rihanna did this 747 tour. And because, oh, yeah. because she wanted the publicity, Rock Nation paid for the plane. 
And the journalists ended up singing We Found Love on a Hopeless Plane because they were just treated like cattle. Um, mm. Whereas that's mm. not what happened at the Brinsley's uh, tour. It was just... Well, what happened really with the Brinsley, Brinsley Schwartz tour, it was motivated by a man who wanted to make... And we're not talking about their manager, by the way. We're talking about uh, somebody in the background. A man who wanted to make a lot of money and, 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 and take the money, OK? So it was, that was, that's what motivated the whole thing. But, of course, Brinsley Schwartz, the group, as, as lovely as they were, they weren't ready to go on stage at the Fillmore in New York and open for Van Morrison and Quicksilver Messenger Service. They were like, they've just, they were played the local village hall the week before. They just were totally unready, plus the fact they were jet-lagged, plus the fact absolutely everything. I mean, the only thing that didn't go wrong was the plane didn't crash. Mm. But other than that, every, over about a three- or four-day period, or even in the four-week lead-up, everything went wrong. And it's such a funny, funny story. Um, but anyway, I could talk about that all night. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> why, that's why you might, Will Birch, be the second best interview after Nick Lowe, who was described <laughs> as the best interview. Um, <laughs> is, he, is he teetotal now? If you have a drink with him and see him and meet up, what do you have? Who, Nick? Who, Nick? Yeah. Uh, well, not anything like we had back in the early 80s. Quite, yes. <laughs> when, when, you know, when I was working with Carlene, and no, he's a very, he's a very moderate uh, drinker these days. I mean, we might, we might share a bottle of wine over lunch, but he invariably, uh, is such a gentleman, he yeah. would never empty, he would never empty the glass. <laughs> oh, very interesting. Do you also hang out with Sid Griffin of the Long Riders? I saw their name well, mentioned in your... Uh... He, yeah, I mean, I, I worked with the Long Riders on, on, on one of their um, one of their LPs in 1985 as, as a producer, for want of a better name. We, we did a bit of a mini hit with Looking for Lewis and Clark. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I, I've kept in touch with Sid. Yeah, he's a, he's a mate, you know, keep in contact. Yeah, yeah he's, I'm going to have to have him in here because he's he wrote that book about Bob Dylan and the band, which was impressive down to the exact make of microphone that we used in the basement. <laughs> Sid's great. He can talk for, he can talk for Milwaukee or wherever Yeah, that's right. Really. And he's, he's based in London now, so he's one of ours, which is super. Yeah, he's based in London, and um, I'm sure he would love to speak with you. I'd hope for so. Another one of your, for another one of your interviews. In the music library, I've got 78, and I've got to cover some of the big music writers still. Uh, and it's lovely to have you here. I just want one final recommendation uh, about Cruel to be Kind. And there is a Twitter account, Nick Lowe Bio. Quiet Please was the 49-track compilation from 2009. Which tracks on that compilation should I skip to? Which should be the first ones I listen to that maybe has a personal uh, recollection to a memory of yours? Oh, well, I mean... I've got to really think now. Um, well, I love so many, so many songs. I'm just trying to say Quiet Please was all the way through the solo period, wasn't it? Into those early solo albums. Through the, through the yeah, so it would have cracking up and, and Cool to Be Kind, and then it would go into uh, some of the later stuff. Uh, what, you Inspire Me is a song I really love. Uh, that's a ballad. That was the one that Engelbert Humperdinck covered. And... Uh, is the man that I become on there? That's the kind of Johnny Cash one. I don't know. I'd have to have it in front of me. I just love 
pretty much all of it. And if there were a couple I didn't like too much, I would have no hesitation. You wouldn't tell him. It's it saying so, but I, I'm not going to name any. No, I, lo- I love I love that. It's a very good compilation. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to go out and try and find it because I only I only own one Nick Lowe album, Jesus of Cool. Uh, whereas this one is is a comprehensive. It's longer than most Hollywood films, the best of Nick Lowe, and about 150 times more enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very strong. I think I wrote the sleeve notes for that. So. I was going to ask if you had any involvement of it. So yeah, that's, I did. I did yeah. quite a few of those reissue sleeve notes. Yeah, when they were coming out on um, on the American uh, Yet Rock record label, reissued them uh, over there. Um, God, I love. It's a very difficult question to answer. Very difficult question. <laughs> Has Nick recorded any of your songs? No, but I did do a co-write with him once, which Carleen, Carleen Carter uh, recorded, which ended up on one of her compilations. Uh, no, no, but uh, we covered, Curls or Flyers covered a Nick Lowe song. We did a song called Television uh, on our second LP. Uh, in fact, Nick sent me the quarter-inch uh, seven-and-a-half IPS tape, which I still have in my collection, um, which I put onto a Revox, and we learnt it, and we did it. But Dave Edmonds later covered the song Television. So I've had a sort of long on-and-off contact with, with, with Nick, you know. I, I, I love pretty much all of it, yeah. I, I hope that answers the question. Absolutely, and we haven't even talked about the Austrian and American Who Do You Think You Are? The first chapter is called Who Do You Think You Are? of this book. But I'll just end with um, a description of his set... Um, which you end the book with, it was suddenly as if we were watching Nicky, the precocious 12-year-old, strumming his ukulele banjo to entertain his parents' friends in a cellar bar somewhere in Germany, smiling, beguiling, and knowing exactly when to leave us wanting more. That's what he can do. (laughs) Good writing as well.